next African story will be written by Africans. Meet the people using technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship to craft this new narrative. This is Building the Future Podcast with your host, Dalton, coming up today on Building the Future. The last 20 years was sort of the connectivity era where Africa got connected to mobile and then connected to broadband. The next 20 years is going to be the creativity era where a new generation of entrepreneurs are coming out who are building and creating their own technology. The king countries are going to lead that era. This series is in partnership with the British Council in Nigeria. The British Council is the UK's international organization for cultural relations and educational opportunities. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion or policies of the British Council. For more information about the British Council, go to britishcouncil.org.ng. One of the things we do at Starter is growth consulting. We work with select number of growth stage startups and established companies to grow and retain their customers. We do growth. We're not a digital marketing agency. Instead, we help our clients figure out their customer acquisition and retention by focusing on three major things. We help them build a consistent narrative and community around their core offers. Second, we help them build a scalable, repeatable, and cost-effective growth systems and strategies. And lastly, most importantly, we help them build an in-house team that we execute the strategies for them. We've worked with and still working with companies like Flutterwave, Cranium One, Diawa Law, Omar Gardens, JEE Client Services, Amara Suit, and many others. We're a small team of startup entrepreneurs, investors, product designers, and growth marketers with experiences of building and scaling our own products and companies. To work with you, we'll have to determine if there's a fit and if we can significantly make a difference to your growth trajectory within a short time. If your business is currently making money, at least $10,000 per month and you want to scale to the next level let's have a chat go to we do and book a free strategy session with us that is w-e-d-o-g-r-o-w-t-h.co we do and book a free strategy session with us today Hey, welcome everyone to Building the Future. My name is Dutton. Um, my guest today is Eric Osiakwan. He's an entrepreneur, he's an investor, he's a consultant to World Bank, US government, Soros Foundation, African government and private firms. He's also someone I would call an academic because he's been a fellow at TED, Stanford, MIT and Harvard University. But he's a Pan-African and that's what he would say he is actually. So he's somebody that I really respect in terms of his view about the growth in Africa, especially in the kings of Africa as he calls them, the uh, five countries that are going to have digital economic growth in the next few years. So I'm going to be picking on that with him today. So Eric, welcome to Building the Future. Thank you, Tatun, and it's a pleasure to be on the show. And thanks for uh, uh, being kind enough to uh, have me share my views. 
So let's start with these kings of Africa, right? Um, so I remember when we were talking about this, you actually took me on a task to actually guess the countries. And have, some of them are obvious, but there's one that was not very obvious. So there was Kenya, Nigeria, Ghana, uh, South Africa. And the last one, which is Ivory Coast, was not very obvious. So what are your thinking around these kings of Africa? Were they backed by data or by your observations as an investor and as an operator in Africa in the last few years? Both, actually. And also the third reason was a bit instinctive. And the data pretty much backs it all up in terms of if you look at economic growth, political stability, if you look at broadband penetration, vibrant telecom market, um, investment in the startup ecosystem, pro-innovation policy, these countries are ahead. And that's the matrix that we use to come up with the king. The only country that you said was not yours is Ivory Coast. And part of the reason is French-speaking, it's Francophone. But also Ivory Coast, we know, recently has some civil unrest and so they were kind of set back. But even in spite of that, the economy rebound in a matter of five years. And it's now the fastest growing economy. That says something about because that it's a sophisticated economy and it's an economy that can recover very quick, which is similar to Kenya, who also had civil unrest in 2007-2008, if you remember. They had election violence yes. and things stalled. Yes. Which but was, Kenya which was shocking for everyone, actually. Correct. So those two countries actually have a very interesting characteristic. When you look closely at those two economies, they are less are dependent on resources. They are more diversified. And so you realize that they are a sophisticated economy in the sense that they're able to recover very quickly because it's a strong service sector, not uh, extremely dependent on resources. On the contrary, if you look at the other two countries, which is heavily dependent on resources, which is South Africa and Nigeria, you realize that with the commodities crash, they're having very uh, extreme challenge. And then Ghana also recently started depending more on resources. And so we had some challenges. But if you look at the recent data, it's uh, the economy has started stabilizing. So if you take the Kings, Kings countries, I kind of laid out that the kind of two countries that are extremely dependent on resources. There are two that are less dependent on resources. And then there's one that's kind of in the middle, so to speak. What is the thread that runs through this country? My assumption it has to do maybe with the talent and the level of education and the fact that there is a growing middle class. But you've studied this more than I do. What is the major thread that cut across this country that makes them to be one of the fastest growing economies in Africa? Well, in terms of the digital economy, and I'd like to restrict our conversation to that because if you take the general economy, you know, we have ups and downs. But when you look at it from the perspective of digital, you see a certain constant flow within this economy. And one of them is the attraction of investment into the early tech ecosystem. Right? There's a lot of studies that have collaborated there. These markets are receiving a lot of attention when it comes to digital. And it's not just the fact that there's investment going there, but the investment is fueled by the innovation that we're seeing. And the innovation is coming from the youth population and the entrepreneurs who have decided to build digital companies. Right? And this is underpinned by the fact that these economies have pretty much built a very strong broadband environment. And so you see that because of the availability of broadband on the mobile phone, the young generation of entrepreneurs who are encountering technology have started to build or are building ways of solving social and economic and market problems using mobile as the platform. So that's really what is catalyzing the innovation that we're seeing, of course, backed by a pro-innovation environment, which is enabled by the government. Especially if you take Kenya, for example, the government has taken tremendous steps to create an enabling environment for digital entrepreneurs. And that is pretty much pain of where Kenya is now receiving a lot of attention as what they call Silicon Savannah. And so within the Kings economy, what is happening is that these entrepreneurs 
are building interesting innovations, and that is really getting a lot of investors to pay attention to those economies. And we're seeing more and more investments going into those economies. We're also seeing some form of exits in those economies, and we're seeing digital companies and ventures building out of those economies. So if I follow your thesis, what you're saying is that what catalyzes the growth in those economies was the investment in mobile technology and broadband. I think that happens in the 90s, or middle or late 90s. Um, and that catalyzes growth in the economy such that a lot of young people can see mobile technology as a means to solve social problems. So they could build on top of those technologies. But I want to go back a bit to that because I was in Nigeria when the mobile... The, the second point about that is just a small additional point. You see, that also also shows that there's a market, yes. right? So this is very important. So the entrepreneurs realize that, oh, if everybody's on mobile, that builds something on mobile, people will use it. So it's important to show that mobile also created the market that they see. So it's almost like a virtuous cycle because I want to actually go back before the mobile uh, technology uh, started, before the investment in mobile technology in those countries, especially in Nigeria, because I was in Nigeria when GSM started. And I think one of the key drivers was the population, right? There is a market for it. And there is, a, even though it wasn't that obvious when it started, but there is a spending power that people were willing to spend money to be able to call someone using a mobile phone. And the fact that there was no strong landline network in those countries, right? And so when that happened and there was an investment of mobile technology, then a lot of entrepreneurs started building on top of it. So you almost go back to the fact that these countries have got highly educated, highly aspirational, and some of them have a huge population of people that want to uh, use um, the mobile technology when investment came. Is that correct from your own opinion? Well, part of this is also that the pre the mobile revolution, what had happened was that there was a pent-up demand right, okay. for communication. And if you remember, the landline, uh, the PTTs, uh, Nigeria Telecom or NITEL for that matter, Ghana Telecom and all the incumbent PTTs were not able to provide the channels for communication. And I think that also was sort of a moment where entrepreneurs like Micah Danuga, Strike Masiwa, Putoma, Mikey Joseph saw that, oh, there's a demand for communication. And these guys were not able to service the demand. So if we can build a network, we can pretty much satisfy that market. But as a so, government drive as well, was he not? For example, you mentioned Mike Adenuka. He didn't get the first license initially. It was denied the first license that was given out. Uh, it was given to Strive and MTN. But was there a government initiative to kickstart and say, okay, we have a very bad and non-functional landline network and there's a pent-up demand, like you said. But the government, was it a decision from the government or was it entrepreneurs that saw the need and decided to build for that? Actually, it's the latter. Like you said, Mike Adenuka was denied his license. A lot of these guys will tell you, if he strive, in a lot of cases, took a lot of matters to court. A lot of them really had to fight to get a license. Because if you remember, the governments were in cahoots with the incumbent PTTs because they were the shareholders, right? And so they actually were a bit hesitant in giving these new entrepreneurs a license to build alternative networks. So a lot of them had to actually fight for this, even in countries where the markets were liberalized, where the government has said, look, we're opening the market. We're going to be providing competition to the incumbent PTCs. But to get a license was a big deal. So to a very large extent, I think that over time, the government had to cave in. I think the big push was from entrepreneurs who really wanted to build, saw an opportunity and really went out there very forceful, raised money. I mean, people like Mo Ibrahim. You know, Bill Settle as an incremental net. And that's one of the good things about GSM is that you can start in a small place as the market matures, you can then 
roll out the infrastructure more, right? Mm-hmm. So he was also backed by sort of investors who saw the opportunity and believed in the vision that he had. And therefore, he was able to create Celtal from nothing. So it almost looked like what we saw now, it seems to me that what you're saying is that the growth that we see in Africa now started by entrepreneurs. It was entrepreneurs that saw the vision and built it. Um, yeah, I'm saying that the GSM revolution was purely started by entrepreneurs, but they took advantage of the liberalization environment that was created around that time. And so, yes, government can take some credit, but I would give a lot more credit to the entrepreneurs who actually led the way. And what happened then with that GSM revolution is what is leading to what we're seeing now in which the love entrepreneurs right. are now building applications, content and solutions on top of the GSM framework or, or network and able exactly. to do that. And then we're seeing a lot of activity in those countries and more money start coming. So it become a virtual circle going around that. There are more entrepreneurs who have options before now. Their options are limited. When you finish university in Nigeria, you either get a job in a bank or you get out of the country or you get a job in an oil company. But now people can stay and build a company on top of the network that exists. Yes. Uh, so I characterize the two eras. So the last 20 years until 2000 and um, called it uh, until 2010 was sort of the connectivity era where Africa got connected to mobile and then connected to broadband. And I characterize that the next 20 years is going to be the creativity era where a new generation of entrepreneurs are coming out who are building and creating their own technology. So this is a very important distinction. Interesting. The reason this decision is important is that being connected alone doesn't make you competitive. You see, when you are connected, you're consuming. And most of what Africa did in the 20 years of getting connected on GSM and getting connected to broadband we were consuming mostly content that was not from Africa, which is fine, you know. But what because we're going to see Because you have to utilize next... the network anyway. There is a exactly. learning curve. And first exactly. of all, there has to be utilization before creation. So you need to understand what exactly. you're using. So now we've entered the creativity era. And my postulation is that the king's countries are going to lead that era because they are the countries with the most connectivity. They are the most vibrant silicon sector. They have most of the entrepreneurs coming from there. And so this era is going to be characterized by a lot of devolution in innovation. And we're beginning to see that in Safaricom's MPESA, which has gone global and it's really changed the fintech space. We're seeing companies having innovation in in agriculture, like PharmaLine, Isoko, and you name it. Uh, We've seen a lot of innovation coming on top of mobile money, what I call the second wave of innovation. We're seeing innovation in educational technology. You met one of my companies, uh, eCampus, who are really strong in the edtech space and are really looking to create new opportunities for learning and for collaboration and for education. So we're going to see more and more entrepreneurs building and essentially you'll see them innovating in existing markets, right? So that's how the economy is going to be digital. So things that you do in a traditional way is going to have a digital twist to it, right? For example, PharmaLine now allows farmers to actually get real-time uh, data on their phone, you know, uh, get access to market on their phone, real-time access to information on your phone. There right? seems to be a lot of so, companies doing something similar that I've met in the last few months. Exactly. So you see that entrepreneurs are looking at existing sectors of the economy and they are seeing opportunities in those uh, sectors. Either there are pain points that they are fixing, either there are loopholes in the marketplace, either there are inefficiencies that they see, so they're using technology to close those gaps. 
Right. So, and that to you, you're saying that that's the creativity era that we're going into, that more entrepreneurs will be building solutions, contextualized for Africa and content for African audience and solving problems that is African using mobile technology to do so. Now, what is the difference between that and what we see in the Silicon Valley or London where people are building mobile apps and also building new things uh, using technology? What is distinct about the African growth story compared to the other countries? Okay, so there are two major distinctions of course, the other distinction I'll lay it out for you. The first one is that generally, if you look at the global south, the global south has been late um, into technology and a lot of things. Um, the general civilization and growth of the world, the global south has been kind of been behind. But that has tend to be an advantage because the global south can then leap into next generation technology without having legacy systems. So the problem that Global North has now is that their leadership has become a deficit because they have huge legacy infrastructure that they're trying to build next generation technology on, or they would have had to scrap all of the legacy system to go to next generation. For example, yesterday I was having a conversation with someone in New York where I am, and he was clearly telling me that the speeds that they have here in the States, the networks are very slow. And that is so because the infrastructure here is very old. But in Africa, we're building straight up to new infrastructure. So our disadvantage is somehow an advantage now, and the advantage is now becoming like a disadvantage. So that's one. The second is that if you look at the global south, the population is very useful. If you look at the global now, majority of the population is an aging population. Now, both can be an advantage and a Advantage. However, in the global south and now zoning in Africa, if you take the population of Africa, it's about a billion people, 70% of that is a youthful generation. And that generation are catalyzing that energy and that zeal and that ability they have into creating their own businesses. As you said, when you and I went to school, I mean, back in the day, when you finished school, the ideal thing was to get a job. Today, yeah. it's hip to start a company. Well, I mean, you can say the same in London. I live in the UK and I started my company in the UK and I saw uh, a big trend in entrepreneurship and the ecosystem built up quickly and lots of money going into tech entrepreneurship. So you can almost say the same thing about so many ecosystems being built in different countries. So what I'm driving at is we have an advantage in terms of the youthful population that are building. But you see, these generation entrepreneurs are unique in a sense that they are building on a new platform. Okay. Okay. They are building from a position of non-legacy. And that makes a huge difference when you are building technology. I'll give you an example. If you have built a system on C++ and there is some variance of old technology and now you have to build something new, it's different from when you can build straight up into Python. And I'm just using language, uh, programming language as an example. So the unique thing about the African generation of entrepreneurs is that they are building from a position of strength. They are building on a clean slate, one. Two, they are actually driving growth in a way that is quite unique because they are building at a time where the middle class is emerging. In the global north, you have an existing middle class that has a way of life, a culture. For example, people here still don't do a lot on their mobile phone. Most people still go and work on their computers, on their laptops. But in Africa, everything is on the go. Everything is mobile. You're building for a mobile generation. Right? And the culture is so, just evolving in Africa. So the culture of correct. technology is just evolving. You're not trying to change them from a behavior. You can actually exactly. teach them new things. New things, right? So the interesting advantage is that the emerging middle class is emerging right up with technology, right? So that creates a leapfrog even in terms of the market. And even if you take the e-commerce, right? Most people are experiencing e-commerce from their mobile phone, which is quite different, mm. you know, from when you experience this in a traditional way 
and now you're trying to get into technology. The fourth reason point about why the African entrepreneurs are unique is also a perspective that they bring to how technology is developed, which is quite different in terms of the cultural context, right? So Africa's most economies have a different cultural anticipation compared to the West, right? So the way you develop technology for that environment, and this is a very important distinction, that creates a different framework from how you develop technology here. And I think increasingly that is going to be an advantage because it brings a totally different way of making technology work or building technology that is different from the way you build it in the West. Interesting. The um, fifth reason is also the business models. We begin to see this, that you begin to see different business models begin to evolve even um, in most African economies. In terms of, for example, how you bring the informal markets online. Uh, my company, PharmaLine, makes very small markups on the use of their technology by farmers. So it's a low-margin, high-volume approach as opposed to a high-margin, low-volume approach in terms of business model thinking. So essentially, a lot of things are being created that are different from the existing system that has been there. That's interesting. So in other words, you're saying that a lot of our disadvantage in the past or most recently can be used as our advantage in Africa to leapfrog and build quickly and grow really, really fast because right. we have no impediment. Let's exactly. go back to your own story. So you started in Ghana. You were born and raised in Ghana. Talk me through your entrepreneurial journey and your first company and then that led you to where you are now, uh, being an investor as well as a consultant. Well, I mean, uh, I got into technology as a network engineer, a young guy who wanted to pretty much build companies. And I started <clears throat> first working for a few companies. Then I got an opportunity in 2000 to help start a company called Africa Express, which was an ISP. And that gave me my first entrepreneurial opportunity. Prior to that, I was a co-founder in Africa Express. Yes. And before that, I was involved in help starting an e-commerce business. But it wasn't a fresh startup. It was an e-commerce platform in the U.S. that was coming into Africa. And so I wasn't a co-founder, but I was a country manager that helped set it up. When was that? This was 1999. In Ghana, right? In Ghana. So it's interesting that there's an e-commerce platform in the U.S. that wanted to launch in Ghana in 1999, when internet penetration wasn't that uh, as much as now. Actually, it's interesting because the company is called Novica, N-O-V-I-C-A.com, if you check it out. Novica was an interesting platform where they wanted to put artisans online so people can buy their works. So they built a platform in the U.S. and then they, came, they wanted to get um, West Africa or Africa, starting with Ghana, as the first launch one. So actually, if you go to Novika and you look at West Africa, or I think they have an African platform. I actually started that. I helped uh, bring Africa onto that platform. Today, they have so many artisans from different countries around Africa. And I pretty much helped create that. And what was interesting doing that was that it helped me to learn online culture and how to create trade and commerce, not just my initial skill set of knowing how to connect, but how to do business online. And so, like I said, fast forward, between that time and 2008, I helped build a bunch of ISPs in Ghana, Africa Express, with the busy internet, which was a very successful startup, ISP, which we sold to Afrimax, Afrimax is today 
turned it into an LTE company. I helped build a company in Kenya, in Tanzania, in Uganda, Malawi, and different places. And during that time also, I started the African ISP Association, which was an association to bring all the ISPs together. Because one of the things that was claimed was that the ISPs were seen as the babies, and the incumbent PTTs were seen as the Goliaths. Right. So this David Goliath analogy where we were the small young entrepreneurs that were starting smaller companies and there was incumbent guys who were kind of resisting our entry into the market. And there was a lot of people trying to use the internet in those days, right? Right. And if you remember, around that same time was also the mobile revolution, right? Google was also taking off around that same time. So there were two sets of entrepreneurs. There were those who were either building mobile networks and those who were building ISPs. Kind of refer back to our conversation, we had to really fight to get into the market. We had a lot of resistance from governments, and over time, they had to give in. The same way, eventually, David defeated Goliath. Actually, in a book that I co-authored called Negotiating the Next in Africa, The Politics of Internet Diffusion, we profiled case studies on this. Well, we actually... Essentially, the book is built on this David Goliath analogy, where we looked at a couple of countries and how internet grew. In that book, what we did was that we actually looked at the stories behind the numbers. So we did. So most studies that you saw over that period, over that decade, said, "Oh, internet grew in Africa, mobile grew in Africa," but nobody had been able to tell you what were the stories behind that growth. So in that book, we looked at the politics, the issues, the items that were negotiated. We call them the critical negotiation issues. So we looked at the things that were discussed and negotiated, the battles that were fought by the small ISPs and mobile operators to break through and build those industries. And what were those things? Well, uh, every country had different critical negotiation issues. For example, in Ghana, we had to pretty much fight to liberalize the international gateway. In other words, most ISPs initially were buying the upstream connectivity from Ghana Telecom, right? And Ghana Telecom was using that to hold back the market um, in terms of, for example, access to the three submarine cables. So we had to fight to liberalize that, right? To allow everybody to be able to connect to multiple upstream providers without going through Ghana Telecom. They knew that if that happened, then you've taken the power away from them. So how are you able to negotiate exactly. that? Uh, you know, that's the entrepreneurship part. You know, so you have to engage with government. We had to make cases. Actually, when I set up the Ghana ISP Association, that was one of the first things that we as an organization were successful with. Well, we went ahead, we made a case to the ministry, we made a case to the regulator. It was a long protracted negotiation. We went back to Ghana Telecom and long story short, it took us about two to three years, but eventually the government had to allow the ISPs to have their own international access to the submarine and to actually have it at a price that was competitive, that was not monopolistic and we're not giving an advantage to Ghana Talent. So over my career, I'm trying to show trigger that the first part of my career, that's what I did, right? Substantially building different ISPs in different markets, creating the ISP Association and being involved in some of these negotiations that really opened up the market to these entrepreneurs, to the ISPs. And then in 2006-2007, I got to Stanford as a scholar. And I went into this program called the Routers Foundation Digital Vision Program. And that program was essentially a program that asked the question that what is the biggest problems in the world and can we use Stanford resources and West Coast resources to help solve that? 
Were you so still running gone. a company at that point or you left? At that point, so I took some time off when I went to Stanford. So I was there for a year. It was a good time because, well, prior to this, one of the problems I saw when we did all this was that, as I mentioned, there was not enough submarine cables. So, for example, we negotiated in Ghana to get connected to Satui and get good prices. But the real problem was that there was only one submarine cable, right? So I realized that how about we actually now create a framework to get more submarine cables onto the continent. In that case, then you're not fighting over one thing, but Everybody has multiple access and there's competition to price to go down. Yeah. So when I got invited to this program, I actually got recommended for it. It was called the Routed Digital Vision Fellowship Program. And basically, they wanted what they call digital visionaries from around the world who had a major problem they wanted to solve. And they could leverage the resources in Stanford and the West Coast to solve that problem. So I said, well, the problem in Africa is that connectivity is too slow despite the competition in the downstream market. And so there's a need for competition in the upstream market of submarine cables. And so I wanted to look into how to build more submarine cables in a different manner. Because if you remember, Sat3 was built in a closed club consortium. And wow. that was the reason why uh, smaller ISPs could not get access. So when I went in there, my focus was on how do we build more submarine cables and in an open access manner. Sorry to cut you. So submarine was built in a closed club market. How did that happen? Was it intergovernment organizations working together to say we need to bring submarine cables to Africa and then they only had one? Or was it one company that had the money to do it? Well, this is part of the outcomes of the study that we did. We actually made a case that there was a need for the government to give multiple licenses for multiple submarine cables and if you did that then you actually created a market or you created the ability for entrepreneurs to leverage the market because obviously once there's a pent-up demand the same way there's a pent-up demand for mobile there's now a pent-up demand for broadband, right? And so once you're able to uh, license or give it license, then there'll be enough entrepreneurs jumping on the back one and doing that. So essentially we made a case to a very large extent in the open access model study, not just to liberalize and uh, and allow more submarine cable, but to do it in a way that was um, competitive. And so we took open access in academic publishing and applied the same principles to the telecom industry. Okay. And essentially that opened the market. So post that study, when I finished at Stanford, actually the study was also co-founded by the World Bank. Actually, that's how I became a World Bank consultant because the World Bank was looking to solve the same problem. So I was part of three consultants that did a study for the World Bank on open access models. And so when we finished that, the Kenyan government then invited me to be part of the team that builds their first submarine cable in East Africa called the East African Marine System Teams. And right. so that kind of opened me into my second life where I built all the submarine cables essentially in East Africa. And then we did main one in West Africa. And then I helped build a few terrestrial fibers, uh, suburban telecom in Nigeria, and also NCBC in Ghana. So, so my let's break it down. I just want to understand on a more smaller level this submarine cable before your study in Stanford and when you spotted that problem what was the situation like it was it submarine cable was built by one person one company and it yes, got... yes there was only one there one was company. not enough there was only one cost at three across the western seaboard and it was controlled by the incumbent PTTs right okay. so there was a need to build multiple cables. So the, now, the thing was that it was not just about building one cable it was more about creating competition but also creating competition in a way that it was accessible yes 
Yes, yes. Because I remember when Mike Adenoga was given the license for Globalcom, one of his selling points and one of the message and narrative that was coming out was that they're going to build their own submarine cable and make internet faster and make the call faster and cheaper. That was the call. And I knew before then, the only person that had access to that kind of submarine cable was Nitel and gave access to MTN and all the rest. Was that during the time that you were doing your studies or was it before then? Yes, around, around those times. Time. Yes. Actually, we did our study before. Studies actually informed a lot of those transitions. Yes, yes. So your studies and your work with the government led to a lot of liberalization of the submarine cables that enabled entrepreneurs to leverage on the market and made it competitive and cheaper. So you were working with different governments in Africa, setting up submarine cables for companies and enabling a lot of entrepreneurs to be able to get a license from government. Was that your work? Yes, that was mostly what I did. And then you transitioned to become an investor. So walk me through that. Well, whilst I was doing that, I was doing angel investing on the side as a kind of a hobby. I decided then that, you know, I was going to do angel investing full time. That was right after the submarine table. So I then had a portfolio of about six startups. And so I decided that, look, I was going to do this more seriously. So I started focusing more and more on that. Um, I started the Africa Angel Network, which is a network of angel investors in 2013. And then we had an event for Angel Fair Africa, which we've done in started in South Africa that essentially brings entrepreneurs and investors together to work doing right. So I was involved in that in 2013. 2014, we took it to Nigeria. 2015, we did it in Ghana. Last year, we did it in Kenya. And this year, we did it in Africa. And that event actually catalyzed a lot of the angel investing that we see on the continent today. And has helped to create local angel networks. When we did an event in Nigeria, we did it with Lagos Angel Network. Work. That actually informed Lagos Angel Network's first investment in Hout, uh, was in Hout Bay and another company. And subsequently, we helped create a lot of angel networks around the country and also brought a lot of entrepreneurs online and getting them connected and getting them to get money from not only us, but other investors. I, I would like to ask the last question about your vision for Africa in terms of where do you see this play out in terms of the tech uh, growth, the ecosystem and the startup that have been built now? Well, in terms of the future, I think that we we're going to see more and more entrepreneurs and innovation coming out of Africa. And I quite believe that some of the biggest entrepreneurs of the 21st century, if not the biggest like Alibaba, will come from Africa because we've seen so much innovation or we've seen so much change. And as you know, necessity the matter of invention. So Africa's necessity is also now the reason why a lot is happening. And Africa is going to lead the world again in the 21st century. What are the key challenges that you're seeing? Well, I think the challenges also represent the opportunity, right? And I think we talked about a couple of them. And slowly we are meeting those challenges. But don't you think a lack of funding or too much funding yeah, going I mean, to a particular look, sector is also a challenge in terms of... Well, yes. I mean, the thing is that, you know, there's always challenges, but challenges also represent opportunities, right? Mm. And so I think with time, we're going to see more more happening more and more investment more and more entrepreneurs that's interesting so um thank you very much for coming to this show um it's a pleasure talking to you thank you pleasure talking to you as well thanks for making the time yeah take care now yeah bye this series is in partnership with the British Council in Nigeria. The British Council is the UK's international organization for cultural relations and educational opportunities. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion or policies of the British Council. For more information about the British Council, go to britishcouncil.org.ng. 
One of the things we do at Starter is growth consulting. We work with select number of growth stage startups and established companies to grow and retain their customers. We do growth. We're not a digital marketing agency. Instead, we help our clients figure out their customer acquisition and retention by focusing on three major things. We help them build a consistent narrative and community around their core offers. Second, we help them build a scalable, repeatable, and cost-effective growth systems and strategies. And lastly, most importantly, we help them build an in-house team that we execute the strategies for them. We've worked with and still working with companies like Flutterwave, Cranium One, DIY Law, Omar Gardens, JEE Client Services, Amara Suit, and many others. We're a small team of startup entrepreneurs, investors, product designers, and growth marketers with experiences of building and scaling our own products and companies. To work with you, we'll have to determine if there's a fit and if we can significantly make a difference to your growth trajectory within a short time. If your business is currently making money, at least $10,000 dollars per month and you want to scale to the next level let's have a chat go to we do and book a free strategy session with us that is w-e-d-o-g-r-o-w-t-h.co we do and book a free strategy session with us today do you have an offer, a product, service, or message that would be ideal for entrepreneurs, investors, or corporate executives across Africa? Building the Future podcast can help you. This podcast has been sponsored by partners who want to reach super targeted audience of investors, entrepreneurs, and people who are in the process of starting their own business. If you or your company is interested in reaching those audience, through this podcast. We would like to chat with you. We have sponsorship slots from three episodes up to one year. Send me an email via hello at the starter.com. That is H-E-L-L-O at T-H-E-S-T-A-R-T-A dot com. And we can take this further. You've been listening to Building the Future podcast by Dalton. These are the interviews with entrepreneurs that are playing a key part in shaping the African future. And you'll be able to hear all their stories. For more, sign up for the weekly newsletter at thestarter.com. Our revolution will be televised. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. Before you go, I have a favor to ask you, and it will take 30 seconds of your time or less. It will mean a lot to me. If you like this podcast, you can easily let me know by going into iTunes, Teacher, SoundCloud, or wherever you download podcasts and subscribe. You can also go to our website, thestarter.com. That is T H E S T A R T A dot com and sign up for our newsletter. It will be a huge favor to me and it's really simple and easy. If you subscribe now, it will help us a lot.